Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the award-winning writer, actor and bon vivant, Matt Bainton. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Some of those are true. <laughs> Hello. Um, Matt, you're best known, obviously, as a star of things like Horrible Histories and The Wrong Mans. Um, but uh, should we talk about Light Lunch? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, te- we're such television debut. Yeah. Your TV debut on Light Lunch. I uh, brought this up just now. <laughs> Didn't really expect you to bring it up. It's what we're mainly going to talk about. <laughs> we're not usually in the habit of ambushing the guests, but it just feels like such a nice story. Uh, I I mean I guess I I don't was I I a student probably I certainly had enough time on my hands to be watching light lunch pretty much every day with my friends and we thought it would be fun to go and sit in the studio audience we even baked a cake for the, for the band did you there was What's, a band what was the band don't you remember the band and yeah. they they had a different name every week. And it was always like a, a breakfast based like. name. Oh. So that week it was Roxy Muesli. <laughs> and we baked them a cake. My friend Chris Harrop baked a cake which said on top of it, Shake your booty, it's Roxy Muesli. <laughs> and I think this endeared us enough to the sort of floor manager that she picked me out to um, introduce the show. They used to have someone from the audience would introduce the show and then say roll credits at the end. And I did, so I read the auto cue, and I think it was Murray Walker was the guest. <laughs> so I read a bit about 
Murray Walker. It's almost I really hope no one can find It'll it. It'll be on YouTube. This will get someone will find it. Someone always finds it. Digging up. But that, that I haven't grown into my features yet. Oh, right. <laughs> will we not recognise you? <laughs> no, you will. That's Do you the look awful like a pepper thing. army? Is it the, that sort of a look? Yeah, the, the big nose and the big chin were there, but the rest of the face was not large enough to accommodate them suitably. <laughs> the superstructure. I'm very pleased to be sharing a room with a fellow big nose, big chin brother. It's you know. nice. It's like yeah. it's a looking into a mirror. It's yeah. scary. <laughs> But that experience of going up and seeing things recorded is really, especially if you want to get into comedy and things, the first time you go up and, and go and visit a studio, and it's re- you feel really lucky if you if you had that chance as a kid, if you lived sort of within the environs of somewhere where they were recording comedy. We, we went yeah. to Fry and Laurie, I think. I, I went to see uh, Fist of Fun, I think, being recorded and things. Oh, the, wow. and it was really fun. The pilot of Room 101, we went to that, yeah. didn't we? I never thought at that. I I have always been obsessed with comedy, but it was relatively late that the penny dropped that that was what I wanted to do. I thought it was just something I loved. But I I also loved music. I mean, basically, I wanted to be what Jason was. In fact, I used (laughs) to come and see Ben and Jason. Did you? Yeah. And I didn't teach you And I had your album, Candidate. I wanted to be a musician. I played in bands until relatively recently. But that was always the first love, like many comic people I think <laughs> just wanted big, to be a failed musician there's a great big comedy music crossover isn't there it's yeah. huge people th- who love both and people who do both I mean you can yeah. see Kevin Eldon's a terrific singer and a really good guitarist and yeah it's really it is it's very common and I think there is something comedy more than any other kind of form I guess of writing or storytelling depends upon a, an understanding of rhythm yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also you learn things. I, I was noticing this, especially because we do a lot of pastiche, and you learn to do a pastiche, and you actually you learn to write in the same way as you learn to play the guitar and learn to write songs, by listening to other people's ones. Yes. Copying what... Th- there's a cool progression to a news story. There's a cool progression to yes. a review of a lawnmower that you can learn, you can copy, it, and you know when it's right and when the notes are flat. And, yeah. you, and you find that rhythm, and you, you, you learn... Not only how to pastiche things by sort of this is what a tomorrow's world report, this is what a news report looks like, but you also learn by looking at, say, Python sketches and working out how the rhythms of them work. And I think one of the things that's really interesting when you find your own voice as a comic writer is you realise sometimes when you're doing someone else's sketch. Yes. When you're just doing a really good cover version of Monty Python or Fry and Laurie. And sometimes there's a joy in saying we're just using all their rhythms because it's a classic blues number. But you've learned how to do it. And then occasionally you go, well, I'll I'll put an unusual chord in here. I'll I'll switch this round. Exactly. And I think I, I love as well when you've reached that point where you can kind of knowingly not do the trad thing yeah. or yeah. the kind of the cover version there was a moment on uh, a show i did called quacks that james wood wrote where he'd written this brilliant monologue for rory kinnear which was a sort of absurd victorian adventure story yeah. that turns out not to have been true and there was a line in it about uh natives playing uh, i can't remember what the detail was but it, but it had the word flute in there and Rory sort of pitched to James, can the can flute be the last word? Because I think that's the funniest mm. word to end on. And James went, I know it is, and that's why I don't want it to be at the end. <laughs> and I, yeah. I kind of love that. That sort of, I think that's really nice when you're at that level of detail where you're sort of choosing which laughs you want and which you don't, and sort of yeah. Yeah. which feel a little bit easier or it's, it's cadences it's exactly, yeah, what exactly. It's, what's the last chord is it is it does it resolve to the root note or does it end on something sort of bluesier or more unusual or jazzier yeah it's, there there is a lot in it and i think it's, it's to do with how you learn how to do it as well that you're 
uh, yeah, you're, you're always made of a mess of your influences and then also where you've chosen to transcend those influences. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, that's comedy dumb. How did we uh, get there? I can't remember. That's great, good. Um, so from Light Lunch, uh, it's it, totally coincidental that Light Lunch came up in the little preamble beforehand because where I was going to start with this is I was going to say, because this genuinely occurred to me when I was having a look at your thing, you know, sometimes you have a, re- a really sensational meal that leaves you so full and delighted and then a bit of you a bit of your brain says i can't have that meal again what i think you've brought in here is a sensational meal that you can have again and again and again <laughs> because this has got this it it's got everything and it left me absolutely full and delighted watching it for the nth time what have you brought in matt i've brought in the big lebowski yeah yeah oh yeah what condition my condition was in I woke up this morning with the sun down shining in. Boy, is it good. Isn't Boy, it? Boy, is it good. Yeah. It's better when you come back to it, though. It does get better. Because legendarily, this so. is a very badly reviewed, very yeah, uh, a huge, office, huge flop, very criticised, and it's definitely a film that the second time you watch, you go, oh, God, yes, yes, it is brilliant. It is that brilliant thing, which is that it doesn't insist upon its own excellence. It, <laughs> it, it really, it plays like a breezy first draft of something very throwaway and silly and fun and goofy. And it's deceptive because when you go back and I watched it, again to i hadn't watched it for years actually it just looms large as an influence mm. for me it is every single moment of it is just perfectly pitched and perfectly placed it suffered if i remember rightly it suffered in my mind when i first read because it, it comes out straight after fargo and mm. the coen brothers have made fargo and the coen brothers are sort of fairly freewheeling and, and ramshackle and tonally uh, they just enjoy tone and 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 fargo is undeniably a tight well-written demonstration of their craft and skill. And they bring out this thing straight afterwards, which looks like a like a loose, shambolic first draft. Mm. They haven't even thought it through. But they wrote this before Fargo. Yeah. It's br- the loose ends in it. I, I, like we were just saying about sort of choosing not to do the thing, the sort of textbook thing. Yeah. For example, they set up Quintera as the antagonist beautifully with this slow motion sequence John Turturro yeah. absolutely, absolutely sensational costume <laughs> they do this whole and this whole build up about who he is and his backstory as a pederast <laughs> yeah. and going door to door and then you see him again later and they've tried to move the date of the semis what's this day of rest shit what's this bullshit I don't fucking care it don't matter to Jesus and any other film it's about the when you finally see the semi-final yeah, and are yeah. they going to beat him? Doesn't happen. No, they do it ends ru- before that happens. It's amazing. They do a rule of two with his scenes. He appears once, twice to confirm his threat, and then he's not there. And then it just doesn't. What's exciting about this is is it's got that mastery of it because it doesn't care, and it sort of they, they've earned the right. They've written a lot of tight films, a lot of tight scripts, and they've got this sort of Chandler-esque plot running in the background. Mm. And it's as if to say, well, we could do that if we wanted to. We could write a pop hit. But we fancy doing this something different instead. Yeah. And it's got what I find really amazing about it and really enjoyable about it is it is a bravura demonstration of all their crafts and skills character building, dialogue, set pieces, plot, narrative, direction, all these stuff. And they're using them to create a world in which there's something really, something that a really good writer will do, which is to give each character 
their own independent arc and reality that a character will want something mm-hmm. and exist outside the film and have their own wants and needs and this is a film that's got a vast cast of interesting character actors occupying interesting characters all of whom have got their own little film and the film itself doesn't actually show all those worlds together so these people just drift past and the odd thing about it when you watch it a few times is you go oh that's like life yeah. Weirdly, this thing is supposed to be heightened and not realistic. But oddly, that experience of being a bit part player in other people's stories is how we all exist. And We're all drifting past yeah, each other. That's why it sort of elevates itself, I think, ultimately. And I think the key to that is the death of Donnie. Yes. Is that in a kind of quote unquote normal film, even a comedy, that's such a strange move to make. You get this really funny scene where they confront the nihilists and Walter finally kind of goes full <laughs> Vietnam the as he's promised to. For, and then you, they, he turns around and said, man down, has he been shot? No, he's had a heart attack. And it fades to black and he's dead. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it hurts because that's not... Be, they haven't paved the way for that with a plot. They haven't... They foreshadow it ever so slightly with a shot of him rolling and... Uh, one skittle is left standing. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's the only thing, and that's only moments before that tiny little f- yeah. sort of foreshadowing of it. What's lovely is you don't. I think we're so used to how to how story is crafted. Yes, mm. that if a character is going to die, we know it. Yeah. we really yeah. know it in advance because the whole thing has been woven towards that moment, and it's it's genuinely shocking. And as you say, that feels very much like life. That whatever the whatever that big story or that big adventure is, someone can drop down dead, and that's what matters. I think there's something really exciting in this film as a comedy and uh, defending the 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 role and the importance of comedy is that if you were a critic uh, who wants to look at the whole of the Cohen's work or even just cinema, you'd say that a film like Fargo is realistic. There are realistic consequences for realistic characters you can believe in, and The Big Lebowski is a film that is heightened and non-realistic and cartoonish and larger than life. But when you look at how the mecha- the mechanics of Hollywood plotting work, they're not realistic at all because things have consequences and setups. It's it's all fake. The weird thing mm. about this film is it's got this heightenedness to it that it seems to be unreal. But the way that things happen for no reason, or that the big carefully knotted plot turns out to be bullshit, to not matter, is actually how life really is. Your life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, and the dude's got other plans. Everyone is heading in a different direction that is nothing to do with mm. the ostensible Raymond Chandler story. Yeah, I mean, the film is like is serially inconsequential, isn't it? Constantly, yes. even down to the micro level, where the conversations that the three of them are having just go round and round in yeah. circles. That rug really tied the room together, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And shut the fuck up, Donnie, and that kind of thing. No one seems to get anywhere. No one's point, listening which to is great. anybody. I mean, the, the, the relationship <laughs> between the three best friends in the middle of it, Donnie and Walter and the dude, they don't listen to each other. I love it's, it's again to come back to music. I think the first thing that really kind of blew me away about the film was the dialogue in in those scenes of the three of them together. Mm. That the from a musical point of view, I mean, it's kind of we talk about contrast and rhythm in writing, and it's we say it so much it seems cliched and obvious, but it's so you have the dude who is a languid and calm 
kind of melody. You yeah. have Walter, who is like a brass band, sort yeah. of <laughs> blaring, you know, blaring. Away. And then Donnie is this little piccolo kind of, <laughs> <laughs> and he just asks questions. It's all he does. And they've sat him the other side. He's not even physically with them. He's the other. He's he's got his back turned, and he just turns around and says, "I'm the walrus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the walrus." It's like Lennon said. You look for the person who will benefit, and uh, uh, you know. Uh, I am the walrus. You know you'll. Uh, uh, well, you know what I'm trying to say. I am the walrus. Uh, that fucking bitch. Oh yeah. I am the walrus. That's ex- shut the fuck up, Donnie. The I Lennon, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. You know, <laughs> or just asks questions, and Donnie and and Walter turns around and says, "Shut the fuck." But it's so. That that's such brilliant, perfect dialogue writing. It's yeah. great, isn't it? Because you sort of wonder why are these three with each other, and the answer is because they bowl together. Yes, they're bowling mates. That's the other thing. I think you can imagine the executive, particularly about the dude and Walter. Yeah, to have a hippie and a, a neocon. A ne- yeah, someone obs- obsessed mm. with Nam and obsessed with combat in a positive way is an insane yeah. pairing. Why would they be friends? And the executive note would be, we need to just, you know, a few lines just to explain to the audience why they're friends. No, we meet them in a bowling alley. That's enough. Yeah. Yeah. They care about bowling, so they're friends. But they care for different reasons, don't they? You know, I think the dude just wants to roll. Walter, I think, wants to win. Yeah. You know, he has that, there's that great scene with, um, this isn't numb, this is bowling, there are rules where he pulls pulls a gun gun on someone, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Am I the only one who cares about the rules? (laughs) But there's, there's something I've, I've read a piece that someone had written about this about saying that there's something why is it compelling whenever you've got a little team of people and, you, and you're setting them up and one of the reasons this is a lovely film is that you enjoy the company of the characters they're all lovely mm. and they're all horrible in their own different ways but they're all compelling you want to spend time with them and watching them and the core group the, the three at the beginning there's, there's such a lovely friendship which there shouldn't be but it's got a sitcom feel to it as in they're a mismatched bunch of people who've been thrown together by a sit and the sit mm. is the bowling alley I love the fact that John Goodman was in the Flintstones movie because there's a real Barney and, and Fred bowling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. It does feel a bit like a cartoon or a sitcom. Mm. They're a gang of people. Th- I read this article. It said that when you look at what Walter and the dude represent, they're the two sides of America in mm-hmm. the breakup after the 60s. One's the idealistic sort of pacifist version and one's mm-hmm. the hawk. And the great thing about this film, why it's lovely to watch, is they really get on. Yeah. It's almost like this plea for, oh, God, I'd like to live in the America this is set in. Right. Where those two forces could be friends. Right. Like a liberal and a, and a neocon. And it's like, oh, it is a fantasy world where, hey, they've got something in common. They all want to bowl together. And it, it's just, there's something really hopeful. There's loads of hope in that friendship because yeah. they shouldn't be friends. Yeah. And weirdly, again, sort of when you look at the text on the page and Walter just, all he ever really says to Donnie is shut the fuck up, you <laughs> yeah. miserable piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> That that ought to play as really horrible. You ought to, you really ought to feel like this guy's awful. They shouldn't be friends. I feel so sorry for that guy. He keeps shouting, but it doesn't really play like that. It plays in that way that we accept that, like sibling relationships, that yeah. you basically just shit on each other the whole time, <laughs> but you deeply love each other. Yes, well, I read a, an interview with um, Steve Buscemi in Rolling Stone, and he said when he first got sent the script, he didn't want to do it because he just thought they they just treat Donnie awfully. One completely ignores him to the extent 
that there are theories going round that Donnie is a figment of the dude's imagination, <laughs> which is bullshit. Um, and Walter is just horrible to him and shuts him down the whole time. And he said it was only when I got to the bit at the end in the in the parking lot where Walter then defends Donnie and stands in front of him mm. just before he, he's get he's mm. killed over by a heart attack. And he said, "Oh, they like him. I didn't realise they liked him." Mm. And that's when he said, "Okay, I'll do the film." Yeah, because he thought see- it was a really cruel bit of writing to begin with. There's a there's a very telling thing in the Coens are amazing. Their casting is always brilliant. The great yeah. thing about this, they've got a rep company of people they yeah, use. Yeah, and they use, yeah. And it's almost like the American version of, I don't know, Carry On or something. They're just, they're a big bunch of people who've got characters they can bring with them. And the thing about the three guys in the middle of this is everyone likes those three actors. Mm-hmm. They're very likeable. As Pauline Kale said that Jeff Bridges is the most unselfconscious screen actor who ever lived. You don't feel any of them are working or trying hard. You just like spending time with them. And you get the feeling that the actors themselves are probably nice guys and they like each other. And something shines through almost beyond the script. They've cast it so well that there's no way that John Goodman doesn't really like Steve Buscemi. And it's it's something to do with just clever casting. that It shines through the lines. Yeah. There's more going on than the words. It's amazing how the rhythms of speech, the sort of interrupted, the kind of cul-de-sacs that they take themselves down. <laughs> Most of them don't ever finish a sentence without <laughs> restarting it. No, and those true. actors make it feel like that's them taking fully written sentences and, and rendering them in a more kind of real thinking on your feet kind of way. But in fact, they're all written that way. And it's got that in common with something like With Man and I, mm-hmm. that they're sort of slightly freewheeling and these people. But what though both those films have got in common is they're very written and very heightened. Mm-hmm. And yet they feel, I think we go back to it, it feels real. And there's something authentic in the very crafted weight of the words it still feels it's not attempting to be real it's not Ken Loach it's not realism and yet there's something authentic and real about about how it plays yeah and occasionally you can hear the writing like so Maud um, she's she's just one who all her language is kind of slightly twisted and fruity you know Mm. she talks about the the porno as the beaver picture and she and she mentions a hundred thousand stones or clams, whatever you call them, she means dollars. And I was sitting there mm. going, I'm sure they've just made that up. No one's ever called a dollar a stone. Have well, it'll, it'll be Chandler, because they were trying to write the big slip. They said they yeah. wanted it to be like, the yeah. reason it's set in LA is yeah. they wanted that Chandler thing. Yeah. And it's got, I thought as well, they, they based it a little bit on sort of the shambling private eye pictures. It's got a whiff yeah. of Columbo about yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why I picked it as well is that I realised... The Wrong Man's is just basically, it's probably the biggest influence on it. You can and tell, the, it's, the, it's the wrong we, person with the wrong job. Exactly, and with a buddy who's up for the, who wants to tag along even though he right. wasn't invited. Yeah. yeah I, Walter drives the plot. He's not the yes, hero, exactly, they, because if it was just the dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he constantly drives it off the road, but yeah, he yeah. was at least what, driving. That's, that's the thing, is that I came across The Big Lebowski when I was... 18 or 19 I was on my year out after A-levels and I worked in a call centre for a bank and was just (laughs) utterly miserable and drank and did drugs basically to uh, sort of uh, bury my deep deep (laughs) sort of funk disappointment in yourself (laughs) I hadn't got into I'd applied to a to a course at university I hadn't got in and was thinking of you know okay I'll take a year I'll work I'll save some money and I'll apply for drama school and and you know fingers crossed maybe I'll work out and I hated my job so much that I spent every penny I earned at the pub or or with my drug dealer this is quite a big confession (laughs) 
I think we all had and, those um, years. It's fine. <laughs> and um, I hitherto had not been really like into film. Yeah. You know, I'd grown up with Spielberg and Back to the Future and yeah. all these great sort movies. Which, which is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But was not sort of a student of film in any way. And this guy worked in the call centre for one week who was like <laughs> this quite cool guy who was kind of culture and we would talk about music and he mentioned oh you'd love the Coen brothers I hadn't heard of them and he said the big Lebowski you should watch it I think because he knew I was yeah. smoking weed every lunchtime <laughs> and I bought it on DVD and it was the first DVD I ever owned hey. it was when would when did DVDs come out? Around it's going to be it was late around that. Late it, it was an early DVD, right? 96 No, no. It's, I mean, it's, yes. I think my first one I would have bought when I was. I remember buying <laughs> buying uh, on DVD. I bought Spinal Tap and Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. And frankly, I don't wow. know why I bought any other DVDs because that's all you need, right? <laughs> well, I would add Lebowski to that, but. I so it was the first DVD I we we didn't have a DVD player but we had a computer with a DVD drive. <laughs> so I had quite to, a good computer by those yeah. days. Well, yeah, then, well, thank you. <laughs> I was doing all right, and so and because it was because I'd paid for it, I watched it loads. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it. Are you listening but, to this Spotify? It's <laughs> thing, yeah, I exactly. So I I I watched it a lot. I absorbed it completely, yeah, yeah. and then. Kind of years later, my girlfriend is a film historian and I met her when I was, it was around that time, in fact. And so I've been utterly kind of educated in film noir and all of the influences that the Coen brothers had on this thing, The Big Sleep and The Longer Bye and Tom. all that stuff. Um, it's a good way of, of introducing yourself to those tropes, I suppose. I think so. And so that's the thing. By the time we came, The Wrong Man's came from me thinking that a sitcom noir a sitcom that was based on the kind of noir story structure yeah. Yeah. if you could argue there is such a thing but those tropes was the idea and i wasn't thinking about the coen brothers by then i was thinking about those things that were the the influences that they had but re-watching the lebowski now i'm going oh my god we just so much of this is in the wrong man's but it's, it's because it was just so but the structure in of, there of, for of, me, of going further and further into a sort of labyrinthine plot and that being explored by meeting a series of characters each of whom has a secret or an element of the secret which is at the chandra-esque structure yeah is i loved that about the wrong man's that every week that the answer was with a different person from a different level of the conspiracy yeah. or the criminal and and every week the the protagonist is thinking this is the last thing i do and then i'm out yeah, yeah. once i get this done yeah. i go back to my life it's fine and the dude just wants his rug back yeah <laughs> Uh, you know, and Sam just wants to go back in the wrong man. Sam just wants to go back to work because he doesn't want his boss, who he loves, to hate him. He wants to get back yeah. with her. So he wants to get back to work and do his job and impress her and be back with her. And with us, we're sort of always trying to find ways of making him appear to be doing the worst possible thing <laughs> as far as she's concerned. Yeah. So, for example, we did a thing where they end up with a hostage in the office <laughs> and the yeah, hostage is yeah. sort of chained to a radiator because you don't want them to because he'd beat me up <laughs> so and he says i need the toilet and you go well i'm not going to unchain him because then he might be lying and he might hurt me 
So what would you do? So we kind of cut we cut to Sam with a plastic bag that's clearly got a poo in it. <laughs> walking out of the office and he bumps into Lizzie, the very person he wants to take him seriously and and then she smells it and he has to say it's his own farts. Because he had a roast dinner. But you've got the structure. You, the, the, what you're doing there is, is, is turning uh, a noir into farce. And the situation there is that you've got an unwilling protagonist. Mm-hmm. You've got... Um, this is how Lebowski works, is you take... It is the worst person to give this plot to. And it opens, exactly. It opens you, up with a wrong delivery. It opens up with pure Hitchcock. With, they've got the wrong guy. It's how North by Northwest starts. Mm-hmm. You start it by mistaken identity. You're supposed to deliver a thriller to number 13, and you knock on the door of 13A, and then 13A is the worst person yeah. who has no interest in being in this thriller. Yeah. And then you see what happens after that. And that person, the really hard thing to do with the script after that is to try and keep that person motoring within that mm-hmm. thriller when they don't want to be there. The, fu- the funny thing about the dude is that I, I, when you're answering that question, who's the worst person to visit this plot on is the kind of question that as a writer you're then answering. With Sam in The Wrong Man's, we answer, well, a sort of middle management coward. Yeah. Hm. Um, Not a hero. Yes. And with... Lebowski, I think it, the the dude is a really interesting one because on the one hand, he is someone who just wants to go go bowling. And mm. so ha- dealing with all that is a is a pain in the arse. But again, what's really nice is they don't adhere to that in a really strict and obvious way because actually he begins to quite enjoy it. And in a way, someone who's unemployed has got time to go on that <laughs> yeah, adventure. Yeah, yeah. And when he starts later on to kind of be going, you know, this is a complicated case, a lot of ins, a lot of outs. <laughs> what do you mean? You get the, the feeling it's like, yeah, that he's quite enjoying goes, playing goes, that role. And they're talking to each other as if they're equals. And he, yes. And I was watching that scene really enjoying it going, he's not a detective. Why is he it's using brilliant. his word? And he's so when angry did, to be. When did he become it's a detective? So, yeah. The Knutsons? <laughs> <laughs> that's great as well, because that's a moment in the plot where it's already confusing and it's just the right time to go... Here's a here's a completely extraneous and utterly confusing detail. But uh, there's a, there's a really nice Joel Cohen's quote about it. He said that what they want to do is something with a hopelessly complex plot that's ultimately unimportant. Mm. And there's something joyous in when mm. you're trying to follow a really complicated plot and your brain's going, oh, God, do you know what? I just want to enjoy this film because the mm. characters are so good. It's a bravura bit of writing to go, do you know what? I don't think the plot's important. I think you're, you're losing track of this. And I'm empathetic to you as an audience member mm. not following this. And I'm going to drop some clues that the lead guy doesn't think this is very important. So wouldn't it be funny if the joke was that he didn't think it was important? And then at the end, that he's right and it wasn't important because it is a, it's a hunting of the snark, it's a boojum. The thing yeah. they find at the end isn't really there and there was no, there was no crime. Well, the whole yeah. thing... The whole <laughs> there was thing. no kidnapping, yeah. there was no money. Yeah. There was no, no one was mutilated, no, no, the yeah. victim wasn't mutilated. No, that the was Amy was, Man's toe, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. see Amy Mann uh, just turning up as a, as yeah. a mutilated woman. With flea. Yeah. <laughs> it's full of pointless musicians' cameos. The, yeah. whole, the, whole thing is, the whole thing is summed up in that bit where he's at Treehorn's place up in the hills and Treehorn takes a phone call and makes a note on a phone pad and says I've just got to go out of the room for a minute and the dude goes right I've got, there's a clue there and goes over there and scratches the pencil on the pad and it's a picture of a, it's a little scribble of a man with a huge erection yeah. that's the whole yeah. film yeah yeah absolutely it, clue, it was a hard yeah. one that's it yeah yeah <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. But the great thing is it's like because the big sleep is confusing yeah and it's, but they take no one understands the Maltese Falcon I've watched it I just don't know what happened the number of films that I really like that I, I watch yeah. them again and go Oh, that's what the plot was. And the yeah. plot isn't what you remember. You, all these things about how plot is, is the, the, the driving thing for, for, for no, Hollywood No, what's drama. important is that the character is driven. Yeah. And exactly, the more, the, the more you're lost in that plot, the more you focus actually on those characters and the more you realise that that's what it's about. Yeah. It allows the themes to sing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Do you find that whenever I look a film up on Wikipedia that I really like and I start reading the plot, it always goes plot, and you read it and you go, I don't remember this film at all. And weirdly, when you boil a film down to its plot, it doesn't feel anywhere near the same as mm. the experience of watching the film because you're watching theme and character and yeah. texture and mood. And I like a good plot, but my God, when you reduce a film down to a description of the action, it feels yeah. nothing like the film. And this is a lovely film about how the plot, which is good, it's a solid good plot with some false leads and some, some switcheroos and things. And at the end of it, it, was, it turned out to be bullshit because that's not how the world works. Yeah, There isn't a big conspiracy out there. It isn't as complicated as that. Sometimes people just are wandering about, meandering and bumping into mm-hmm. each other. It's quite a revolutionary thing to say in Hollywood. That wasn't her toe, dude. <laughs> Whose toe was it, Walter? What the fuck should I know? Where the fuck are they going to get... You want a toe? S- I can get you a toe. Believe me. There are ways, dude. You don't want to know about it. Believe me. Yeah, but Walter... Hell, I can get you a toe by 3 o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. What I love as well is that they don't just sort of take noir and go, that's our playground we want to have fun with. Because it opens, for example, like a Western. Mm. And you've got the tumbleweed (laughs) and and this really lovely, rich voice saying, you know, introducing (laughs) something that sounds really important... And then gradually he, he getting can, lost. So even the voiceover the blocks, though, can he? ends with him going, "I lost my train of thought." <laughs> yes. right, it's a real statement sort of, of intent. It, it, though, exactly. Isn't it? <laughs> it kind of goes, "Is this a western? No, it's not a western. It's not even going to be really a noir." I think what what's really nice about it is that they, of course, it's full of noir mm. homage and reference, but not in a kind of pastiche way. They no, don't, no. he isn't a private dick. They don't do, it's not sort of black and white cinematography. It's not Dead Men Don't Wear Plan. It's not a comedy take on noir. Yeah, it just uses what it wants to from the films that they want well, actually, to use that from. but that, yeah, They don't even borrow the look. I mean, Roger Deakins, the, the cinematography, oh, God, the cinematography is beautiful, fucking but it's not. I mean, it's very, very high contrast and it's very, very, it pops, but it's not, it doesn't use all the lenses and the, no. the, the, the smoke and or even the monochrome textures of, of, of a noir film. Yeah, it wears its brilliance lightly, again, because the temptation for someone who wants to show you how clever they are is to have that conversation with Deakins and say, no, 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 we want this to look like that scene in The Big Sleep and we yeah. want this to look like... Yeah. And they go, they, they're too classy for that. They yeah. go, no, it's enough. We've, that's all there in the script. That's enough. We want this just to look like an L.A. movie. Yeah, and also look like a Coen's movie. Yeah. I mean, I have a a, a love-hate relationship with the Coen's. There's some of their films I adore and some of them I'm not bothered with. Mm -hmm. The thing that fascinates me with this is it's it's the one that gets quoted a lot now as sort of one of their best. People really love it. Mm -hmm. It's gone from being sort of an unloved runt to being one that people just quite say, yeah, this goes in the 10, you've got to keep or whatever. What I find with the Coen's is that when they're doing as straight as they do drama, when they're doing No Country for Old Men or... Fargo, I think lots of people do that really well. If you want to watch a really good, tightly written character full thriller, you can watch the Coens or you can watch loads of other people who also will do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone does comedy like them. I think their comedies are thoroughly unique. No one else could make this film and no one else would make a film like this. And if you sort of go, what are you leaving behind? There are other good, uh, there's a guy behind you pursuing you across the desert movies, mm. as well as No Country for Old Men. But there's not another one of these. I love their comic voice. I thought everyone was really rude about Burn After Reading, which is another shambolic oh, meandering. Loved it. And I thought, after I watched No Country, I thought, that's pretty good. And I watched Burn After Reading and went, oh God, no one else could have made that. That yeah. voice, yeah. that comic <clears throat> voice is thoroughly unique. I often get tired of gaggy comedies. And I think it's part, maybe partly just jealousy because it's a skill I can't do. <laughs> but I also think 
comedy is often at risk of being the guy at the party who you get cornered by, who thinks they're really funny. <laughs> trying too hard. Trying too hard. Yeah. And I love stuff that this is a great example of. It doesn't try too hard. It doesn't even really present itself fully as a comedy. It's not only concerned with making you laugh. Yes. And it's never making you laugh. It's very rarely making you laugh with gags. The reason I revised from never to very rarely is because there's that brilliant visual thing with the baton that he nails into the floor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is absolutely... That was so and Hardy worthy. nails this thing into the floor in order to wedge a chair under the handle so that because people keep showing up in his flat and then he just finished he just think gets the last nail in and then hundreds the, of nails and, and then the, yeah and there's so that's what's brilliant in the shot you can see how many nails there are and at all kinds of angles he's been clearly been doing this for ages and then he gets the last one in and then the door just opens outwards the other way and they walk in but then later on, he comes home and trips over the thing on the floor. So, that, I mean, that's a perfect rule of three. Right? Yeah. yeah. So there's moments, you know, there's moments where it, it does play very overtly comic. But I think a lot of the time it's the character and the detail that's funny. And I love that. I mean, that's something that I love to do in things that I write as well. Something I'm really fond of is when you're made to laugh just simply through the voice of a character. Yeah. Or, for example, inarticulate yeah. character. That's something I love is... Mm. characters who cannot articulate themselves yes, very well yes, yes. <laughs> and you know the dude for example when Jesus brags to them about the, the bowling my point is are you ready to be fucked man I see you roll your way into the semis Dios mio man Liam and me we're gonna fuck you up yeah well you know that's just like uh your opinion, man. <laughs> That's his comeback. It's so just, brilliant how inarticulate they are. Through th there are so many laughs that you get through that. Yeah, oh, that's, that's for the me. opposite of say uh, of, of the other thing America does really, really well is those zingy friends cheer yeah. style where you have a load of rich characters and each one of them pings a zinger at each other. And what's lovely about this is that it's got a sitcom cast of big characters, mm. but they don't do any zingers. No, I mean, Walter's got quite a, a good turn of phrase and things. I could get you uh, a toe by three o'clock this yeah. afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get you yeah. a toe. I get you a toe. And you're being very undoed. Yeah. It's <laughs> one of my favourite lines. Oh, God, the, the lovely bit where Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, who's the, the, the valet to, to the, the big Lebowski, the millionaire, and he starts joining Jeff Bridges' character in calling him the dude. And yes. it's a lovely moment where yeah. suddenly you go, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. almost the only character who's been listening to another character. Like, suddenly you go, oh, hang on, he's in Jeff Bridges' film. Because all the films are running yeah. in parallel and never touching. And there's something hilarious about the way that character, who is someone who's attentive and listens because it's his job, suddenly goes, oh, he's now talking to Jeff Bridges as if he's his butler. And it's, it's this little touch. Yeah. Of when you, when that's you, not a joke, but it's, but it's just funny. Yeah, I think the thing you say about people being in different films, that there's a great scene, that they call it the big room scene, where you've got the sort of this important man staring into the fireplace and it's reflecting on... Reference it's a, it's it? a nod to Amadeus, isn't it? Because it was that Salieri sitting in his wheelchair by the fire and they've got the Mozart Requiem playing they, in the background. I think the Coen brothers say they've put a big... They say we've put a big room scene in almost yeah, every right, film we've yeah. done. And what's lovely in the Lebowski version is that the dude is not... Fr he can't play along with that genre. Yeah, he can't no. play along with the with the portentous atmosphere that Lebowski is trying to create as he gazes into the fire and says, what is a man? Yeah. <laughs> and 
They wanted to get Brando for that, by the way. They, had, they fancy they used to oh, do really? the lines. They used to read the lines to each other in Brando's Did, voice. Have you seen their wish list for um, the Big Lebowski before they got David Huddleston? Included Robert Duvall, Anthony Hopkins, Gene Hackman, Jack Nicholson, Rod Steiger, Larry Hagman, Norman Mailer, Jerry Falwell, Lloyd Bridges, Gore Vidal, Jason Robards, James Coburn, Jackie Cooper, George C. Scott, Paul Dooley, Michael Caine, and General Norman Schwarzkopf. <laughs> Because it's got that thing where it's, it's set in 1991 and it's got a lovely... Because it's their playfulness with the, the mm. way of what you're expecting, with expectations. It's set in 1991. They're all talking about the, 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 the stranger at the beginning says, this is about the time we had the war with the Iraqis. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, oh, it's going to be a political film that have some political points. And it sort of doesn't. No, and that's another mm. thing that doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> oh, I'm watching yeah, that for I that. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are Lebowski obsessives who will be deeply disappointed by this podcast. <laughs> I think it's actually going for something. Yeah, the, I mean, I genuinely think, it's especially kind of learning more, a little bit more about how they wrote it, that I don't think they're making some zen no. kind of comment here, really. I think they're, yeah. put, they're putting together, again, the music thing. I think they're putting together something that they think is is rhythmically tonally interesting yeah. they're putting contrasts together and going ah i kind of well, should we open it like a western and then you know yeah, yeah that seems that's watchable yeah yeah oh yeah what condition my condition was in apparently it it began there was a guy that they knew I think who they refer to as Uncle Pete or Uncle Paul, who was a, who was a Vietnam vet. Who they they were in this guy's house or apartment, and he, the, the, for want of something else to say, one of them complimented the rug, <laughs> and he kept using the phrase. It really ties the room together. And they thought, oh, that's really Lovely. that's funny. That as a that as a sentence that gets repeated. That's yeah. funny. Then they knew this guy Jeff the dude Dowd, who called himself the Pope of Dope. <laughs> Uh, but literally the dude, you know, and they thought those two together, that would be fun. And then they heard this story about a stolen car being recovered and they found a piece of homework in it. Oh, yeah. right. So right. It's, it's, it's collage bits of other people's stories. Together. So they just went, <clears throat> two men that we know, we're just going to have them. <laughs> and the thing, that true story we got told about the homework in the car... And that feels like, okay, there's a crime. There's a case they've got to solve. They've got to find the kid who left the homework so they can find out who stole the car. And that's what it grew from. And then they just began. What's refreshing about it is it's not been assembled via the rules of of storytelling. And maybe you're you're sort of saying that you you like things that aren't gag. You get weary of gag-heavy films, Mm. whereas this is a a tonal and a mood thing and it's enjoyable for character and things. You can re-watch something which has got a non-linear musical assemblage of pieces, probably more than you can watch something that tightly goes from A to B to C. I think so, Because you don't get weary of it. No, and you notice new... New it's a things and exactly it's like a, it's exactly like a painting or a yeah, piece of art you yeah. can see new things in it because it's not just doing one thing it is elusive there's a i i wrote this down because i thought it was so beautiful was umberto echo talking about how to make a cult movie and he said a cult movie must be ramshackle rickety 
unhinged in itself. Only an unhinged movie survives as a disconnected series of images, of peaks, of visual icebergs. It should display not one central idea, but many, and it should not reveal a coherent philosophy of composition. It must live on, and because of, its glorious ricketiness. Mm. And I thought, he was writing about Casablanca. Well, we can all do that, mate. And you go, but that... But, you know, it, fe- it feels <laughs> like you go... Ricketiness, yeah. But it feels like you're sort of saying, oh, aim, aim low, but oddly, loads of great movies are made of... Yeah, I mean, Those that, bits, that to peaks. me doesn't sound like aiming low. That sounds like something absolutely to aspire that's to. That's a bloody good point, yeah. I yeah. think that's hard. That's really hard to do. You've got to have faith in your ability to be able to keep the audience's interest without something as basic as a plot. Yes. And at the same time as that, you look at this movie and you go, but it's got a great plot. Yeah, but we're <laughs> as interested, if not more, in the stuff that happens outside of that plot. I think you're allowed to. Be. Also, you're permitted it's to. It's something that one of the sort of common things of, of themes of bad writing for me. The thing that I noticed the most, sort of, as an actor reading scripts I've been sent, and also just as someone watching things and thinking, "Why don't I like this?" Is when dialogue is dealing with plot. Yeah. yeah. The, for them, you, you go, it's as if silent film was never a thing. We know <laughs> that we can tell the stories <laughs> without anyone talking about them. We know that that's possible. And yet, for the most part, dialogue is people saying, what just happened? Mm. Oh, well, then I guess we've got to solve that problem. What should we do next? Here's what we'll do next. Cut to that scene. Here's what we're doing now that we said we were going to do in the last scene. And it's just... I've done shows, yeah. which are like, and as an actor, they're just an absolute. And you just go, but if you find ways to tell your story, and by the way, you can watch almost anything on mute and follow the story. So the obsession, <laughs> you know, of notes of like, is this clear? Do, are people going to understand? Yes, they are. They mm. do. Yeah, yeah. And most of it gets told visually through the, through your cuts and through the action that happens. I wondered if that and, was because people are looking at their phones. Well, these days, I suppose <laughs> it's a different matter. But my point is that if you, if you can tell your story visually and deftly, then you free up the dialogue. Yeah. Then the dialogue yeah. is a playground for other stuff, for other textures. Yeah. And you can, you know, for example, what do people remember about Pulp Fiction? They remember them talking about burgers yeah. and I the fact they Exactly mayonnaise on, you know, it's, it's and, perfect. That was the most amazing thing. Where they, for a while, they would get in Tarantino onto other action movies to add dialogue that wasn't about the action. So they would talk about right. old comics in a submarine picture. And for a while, before you noticed that was his trick, it blew your mind that the characters were talking about something else while driving to an assassination. Yeah, well, yeah. the first thing you saw of Tarantino was the guys all sitting around <clears> discussing whether you, whether or not you should tip the waitress in yeah. a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And by the end of that scene, you didn't give a shit about their opinions about mm-hmm. tips, but you went, God, they're hard, aren't they? Yeah. You know, I know who they are, but the, none of them has told me who they are. Mm-hmm. Yes, you reveal character through dialogue and the plot just runs along underneath it. And Lebowski's full of these, you know, it, it cuts to them bowling. The dude explains where he's with the plot and very very quickly it's about the Pomeranian that, um, which isn't a Pomeranian um, it's about the fact that Walter's brought his ex-wife's dog and you know they're talking about that for there's two so pages there's so much furniture hanging off this story isn't there so many yeah, bits and it's, pieces it's so well decorated it's even down to things like going round to visit the kid who's stolen the car and seeing that his dad is a famous author who's in an iron lung on the other yeah. side of the room can't talk, or arriving at the artist's place and her going over his head naked in a harness, throwing yeah. paint. It's full of these wonderful, Everyone, weird, Everyone's lives images. are running alongside and 
the, the film passes through hundreds of other lives, yeah. which is what happens in real life. You go around someone's house, they have a story of their own going on in the background that is told through the detritus that's on the, the, the picture on the piano or whatever. The things you can see, you go, oh, my story isn't the only story mm. in this, is how we exist. I, I mean, that's a writing cliche, I guess, too, is, uh, and I don't know who said it first, no minor characters. Yeah. Mm. No one is a minor character <laughs> in their own life. They're yeah. all the centre of their own story. And if you're smart and creative, then you can make sure that even if, if you need someone, if you need a butler, you can still give them an inner life and make them work on more than one functional level. It's hard to be to bothered do to that. do it. It's easy to know that that's a rule, but it's hard to do it. It's a discipline, it's, but I think you you must know this as an actor, and we find it as writers, is you do the thing and you get the plot working, you get the characters working, and it's it, there are jokes in it, and it's good. Mm-hmm. You, you finish the script and you hand it over to the cast. And suddenly the cast are there and you go, oh shit, we didn't give you anything to do. We didn't give you an inner life. The, f- the one character you've just gone, oh, it's just, it's just the woman in the, in the delicatessen. And the actor turns up and goes, so who is she? And you go, fuck, I didn't think. Mm. And you are so embarrassed by it that you get bitten by that a few times. And the next time you go, we are better before we pl- hand this over to a professional person yeah. who wants to know, is she uh, high status, low status, where is she from? Well, I should have thought about that because it would have made the writing better. And, you, and you'll have more fun as an actor and I'll get a better actor for this part. Mm if the script goes out and there's some inner life for them. We always say that to each other, writing stuff, you know, that if I got sent this, you know. So that's... It's quite a good window, I think, that you have as a performer when you're writing, that you can look at it from that point of view whenever mm. you choose to and identify when you've been slightly lazy. And But it improves the work. That's the thing, ultimately, that if you can find some sort of colour for every for every character in every moment. And often, if you throw stuff in that feels like it's just there for colour or texture, in my experience, you can bet that somewhere further down the line, you'll go, oh, we can actually, there's a yeah. plot thing we can <laughs> do there. Yeah, We had a thing in The Wrong Man's where the kidnapper shows up at Sam's office and it's, oh my God, he's tracked me down. It's scary. There's this bit we had where Sam is stood at the lift because we just thought it was funny. If you have to stand with this scary man <laughs> and wait for the lift to yeah. come, Sam starts kind of asking how, what his journey, has he come from far? <laughs> and, yeah. and that was it. It was just a sort of tag on the end of a scene. Then we had a thing where later on, someone gets murdered in front of them. Sam is covered in the dead person's blood. They've got to get rid of these clothes. And we had to have a reason why Sam couldn't go home. We knew they couldn't go to the office because they'd been seen at the office. So that's where the kidnappers could go to find them. And we knew they couldn't go to Phil's for another reason. Why can they not go to Sam's? And we go, oh, the bit where he waffles on about the journey, Sam can accidentally give him his address. Oh, brilliant. So you've got Filler that dialogue. texture and it's there for a funny reason. It's not there for a plot reason. And no one will notice it's there for a plot reason because it wasn't. Because it's a joke. <laughs> yeah. But you just feed that in. So you then have this moment Brilliant. in the car where he's going, I need to change my clothes. And Phil goes, well, we'll go home and get some more. And he's like, ah, oh, I told him my address. <laughs> Your address? Why would you give it? You know. <laughs> But I think that's the kind of aim that you're going for. It's like you don't want plot and texture to be kind of different things. But also it's a good example of how the harder you work something, the more it starts to become real or feel real. And actually that work pays off not only 
in one way but in unexpected ways you're making you're making your job easier all the time the more work you do even down to you know the landlord who's doing a dance recital (laughs) I love Um, that and then that's just a good setting for exactly what we just talked about there's a bit of plot that needs to be covered so you do it at the landlord's dance recital I think that's the bit where they found the homework I think one of the biggest plot elements in the film and Walter's found out where this kid lives and says you know that's where we'll go but while that's happening we may as well have some really bad modern dance (laughs) thing like amateur spandex extraordinary setting it makes me think of Sam and Jesse used to say about Peep Show that they would just try to think of more interesting places to go than the pub (laughs) for the characters you know because you're used to seeing sitcoms about buddies who you you spend all the time in their flat or at the pub (laughs) it just also I think the problem is when you're trying to get the thing to sit down and and behave and trying to get plot to go from A to B it feels like a lot of fucking work Mm. and the answer is yes it is it's a lot of fucking work it should be a lot of work but all all creative things are just a series of decisions and each decision leads to a series of other decisions when you watch something something complete and enjoyable what you're watching is thousands and thousands of good decisions yeah Here's the thing, right? When I sat down to watch this again, and I think it's probably about the twelfth time I've watched it now because it's so rewatchable because it's a meal you can have again and again. And I was watching the opening of it with a slightly more critical eye and going, "Okay, what they're doing, how they're doing it." And you're getting that narration and the tumbleweed and the music, and then you're getting the dude who is wandering around Ralph's late at night and tr- and just being very picky about which which carton of half and half he gets. And I so you're I, going, I "So this, this milk's say. important to him, isn't it?" For some reason, and you realise why pretty later on because every drink he has is a white Russian Russian or a Caucasian but it was it was odd because I got so invested in in the guy and I was going yeah it's great he's wearing a he's wearing Bermuda shorts he doesn't care he's wearing a sort of dressing gown thing which we were talking about beforehand and going people in dressing gowns are vulnerable they're not ready for the day yet are they you know it's Arthur Dent it's Mm. uh, the kid in Time Bandits and it's the dude which weirdly all those have turned up as things for Rule of Three people love a protagonist in a dressing gown. Yeah, that's a good tip for writers out there. I think think the Harry Nilsson, Nilsson Smilson movie is the next thing that's going to get made. But the thing is that it was... I looked, I watched the clock. It was 23 minutes into the film when I went, oh, it's Jeff Bridges, isn't it? I hadn't noticed Jeff Bridges underneath all that dude. The dude. Because he's so the dude from the minute he (laughs) slouches round that supermarket aisle. I thought what you were going to say is that aside from this wonderful sort of textural thing about that opening and what it's telling you about the character, they're secretly just setting up a perfect visual gag, which is that the more time he spends picking that milk, sniffing to make sure it's fine and so on, the more you are subconsciously setting up to laugh when the first thing that happens when he walks into his apartment is he gets rammed through the house, his face down into the toilet and the milk smashes on the side of the toilet and goes everywhere. You go, we've just witnessed a whole minute of him buying this milk and it's gone. And it has to be spilt. Yeah. Because that's what's happened to his life. Someone has rammed through it in a truck. And that's also also a brilliant bit of dialogue in there where he's going, where's the money, Lebowski? Where's the money, Lebowski? Where's the fucking money, shithead? Oh, it's... uh, Oh, oh, 
It's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. For the most part, it, a lot of the comedy with him comes from the fact he's inarticulate. He's thinking on his feet. He's not very, really well equipped to sort of deal with situations unfolding in front of him. But there's a couple of times where he wisecracked. If well, it fits scene, the character, there's quite a few in the first scene, because like he says, like, you know, when the guy pulls out the bowling ball. Does this place look like I'm fucking married? The toilet seat's up, man. The fuck is this? Obviously, you're not a golfer. And also at the end of it, when he walks away, the dude says, well, at least I'm housebroken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the easy thing would, would be to make him an ineffectual stoner. But yeah. actually the thing about him is he's clever and he's witty. Yeah. And he's, he's happy in his own skin. And he's got a really good moral compass. He's a good guy. He wants to help out. He, he gets caught up in this accidentally because he wants to make yeah. things right. And that makes him a hero. And I think that's why people go to Big Lebowski conventions. Because mm-hmm. he's a nice person to aspire to. That's quite a nice worldview. I yeah. what goes on at a Big Lebowski convention. Dressing up. And drinking lots of white, white Russians. Russians yeah. Yeah. But actually, no, it's bowling, apparently. There's lots of bowling. Oh, that makes sense. Apparently, bowling and dressing gowns. The, uh, the directorial note that they gave him is that he used to wander on set for each scene and, and uh, entering a new scene and go over to Joel Cohen and say, do you think the dude burned one up on the way over? Uh, yeah. And, they <laughs> and go, if they yeah. said, yeah, he'd just go into a corner and rub his eyes for about yeah. ten minutes. <laughs> But it gives him this brilliant sort of contrasting energy to what you expect in those kind of scenes. So I can't remember what... There's a piece of plot information that... that I think Walter poses the theory that maybe she kidnapped herself or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's in that moment. And the line is, that's interesting, That that's fucking interesting. In any other film... That would be quite front foot. It would be a mm. moment of energy. Oh, new idea. That's yeah. fucking interesting. And there'd be that sense of where's this going to take us? The dude is doing his warm ups for bowling and he's like, his arms are out and his head is back looking at the ceiling. And so instead of a front footed energy, it's that's fucking interesting. <laughs> and it's complete. It's just, I just love those contrasts to what. But again, that's making a choice. That's saying how. Exactly. How I'm did, not going to do that thing. I'm going to yeah. do this thing. And that's the actor making a choice. That's the director making a yeah. choice. That's the screenwriter making a choice. And every one of these things, nothing's missing. Well, the weird thing about this film is that, that despite it not having what appears to be a structure or a plot, because the plot doesn't have to not matter and things, it has got all those beats in. They've just decided to play them slightly unexpectedly or at a weird angle mm. and so you watch it and the reason I think it's satisfying at the end of it you know they haven't made this film wrong because they're mm. incompetent they've made this film right because they're so skilled at this they can still keep you interested and I've watched Coen Brothers films where they've made all these decisions at the end of it I haven't given a shit about any of the characters because they've tried different angles and they, they occasionally do it where they've, they've made it so loose and they've made so many maverick decisions that you that it doesn't quite stick and I think weirdly this is about as out there as they go and still hold your attention mm. and still have the shape and the satisfaction of a full meal rather than mm. it being thin gruel because they've turned too many of the dials down low I think maybe this, maybe it's just there's a simplicity to it for all the mm. complication and all the richness mm. it's com- totally linear everything is just a response to what happened last Yes, uh, it, yeah. you know it follows all the rules. So, however complicated it gets, you don't have to hold anything more in your head. You could be quite that. stoned and watch it. Yeah, maybe that's the secret. <laughs> I must have watched it stoned at some point. You must have watched it stoned at some point. Yeah, I think several of those DVD viewings would have been. There was a base level in my bloodstream at that time of my life. <laughs> yeah, that made this the perfect that yeah. film. Not have been. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a Gulf. film that can be watched passively or actively. Yeah. <laughs> you can enjoy it in an instant. How was your meeting, Mr. Lebowski? Okay. The old man told me to take any rug in the house. The lovely thing about the White Russians as well is it's the most complicated drink, signature drink, to insist everyone's got the ingredients yeah, for yeah, it. Everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes in Los Angeles and Pasadena, he can get... Someone's got Kalua. Everywhere he goes. Kalua, sorry. Yeah. Everyone's, everyone's got it, apparently. Yeah. I'd love to know if that's true of California. No, I, and there's something about the fact that milk is in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> aside, aside from the fact that it's funny that he, ans- like he answers the door with a little bit of milk in his moustache. Mm. I mean, that's a great thing in the morning at the beginning is that you see him sniff the milk you don't see him drink any but when he stands in front of the checkout girl there's a little bit of milk in his moustache it's just just such again that's a decision you've made a great little decision the audience might not notice it that's fine because if they do they're rewarded for the fact that they're paying attention and they will laugh at the detail while he's writing a check for 67 cents meaning that he can't even afford this milk and watching that little speech the aggression will not stand I mean that's another lovely detail is that he quotes other people throughout the film which again this sort of thing that he's not particularly articulate is that he just picks up other people's phrases because he hasn't got his own (laughs) so like uh, trophy wife in the parlance of our time which is borrowed from Maud it makes him a passive hero which is a really attractive thing it's really enjoyable watching someone float through a film that is again Hollywood likes a propulsive active Mm. hero is what you're supposed to have and they've made the decision to say well what would it be like it's like someone having it is you say it's like music it's like someone having a mixing desk and say well what's it like if we drop the bass out what's if it what's it like if we replace the Mm. lead instrument with a bass instrument the lead instrument should be this action propulsion melodic instrument Mm. well what if it's just a a keyboard what if it's just like some pads and they've 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 decided to say what happens if you swap this up and they're tinkering with the the faders on hollywood storytelling Mm. and again what that comes down to is that this is just about decisions and the reason this is a delightful film is that either you like those decisions and you find Mm. joy in watching them again and again and being delighted by the surprise of them or you don't like the decisions and that first set of reviews that were really excoriating about it were people who said they should have made different decisions because they did in Fargo If you've mastered all the techniques, you can start dicking about. But the one mm-hmm. thing you've got to do is make solid decisions that this is what you're going to do and do it with yeah. absolute attention. And it's that thing that, I mean, I'm enormously jealous of writers who just start, carry on, finish with no planning. Uh, you know, they do exist, these, these mythical if you read, creatures. If you read Stephen King's On Writing, which is a guide on how, if you're Stephen King, you can just do that and start right. and then finish. At the end of it, go, well, that was no use of fucking... <laughs> yeah. It's like stage it's one, helpful. be it's me. It's like saying, be... Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways it's not helpful, but George Saunders wrote a brilliant piece on how he writes, where he said, I have a needle on my forehead... I write a sentence, and if the needle goes to the line that says good, I write the next sentence. If it goes to the line that says not so good, I tinker with this one until the needle goes good, and then I move on to the next one. I think the thing with Lebowski, right, is that every scene, there's nothing that's there just because it has to be because of the structure. Each scene in and of itself is a great scene. 
When he goes to Lebowski's house, you have a great scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman as Brandt as they look through all the things on the wall. Oh, God, also... It's it's entertaining in and of itself, each moment of it. There's a job that isn't in screenwriting but is in animation, which is story. You see them credited in all the Pixar movies. They also... uh, Disney used to have it, story people. And you can see it when you see... I went to see the, the second Incredibles movie. And it plays like a lot of shorts they're all scenes and the, the reason those those Pixar's are terrific is they are made up of loads of scenes that are like short cartoons that are mm. proper little uh, Warner Brothers cartoons there's a scene where a babysitter is attacked that's your scene or whatever mm-hmm. and each one has to be entertaining on its own and they, they do their story they build their stories that way by making it out of a string of scenes that are all entertaining in their own right yeah. and what you end up with there is films, especially, you look at those Pixar's, you watch them, if you've got kids, you've seen them yeah. dozens of times, and you are not bored with the good ones because they have been made yeah. out of a series of scenes. Yeah. Like Lebowski is, it's not just the first time you watch it, you enjoy the narrative unfolding. The second time you watch it, you go, oh, this next scene's coming up. Yeah. They are exactly what Umberto Eco said. They are peak after peak after peak after peak. Yeah. Jeremy Dyson's script edited the first series of The Wrong Mans and said a brilliant thing at one point, which, again, I don't know if it came from him or he'd got it from somewhere that going through a script and looking at the stuff that wasn't working or that was or that was least interesting and kind of making a list of the, the bits that were least interesting and literally just going how do i turn the, all of these into my favorite bits yeah <laughs> and scenes like the brant thing you when you've got scenes that have to be there for the story we have to get from this point to this point because otherwise we can't have the thing that we all love that we came up with where Walter beats up the car or whatever. Yeah. Sometimes there are scenes that do exist because you need to join from A to B. But there is always, if you look at it, the potential to turn that scene into your favourite scene yeah. somehow. And a scene like that, I think, Brandt could just say, wait here, and Lebowski could come <laughs> in. But they they find this great material just in you know how do we establish that the that the big that the real Lebowski is this kind of serious businessman someone who is to be taken seriously and with authority well we could have a bunch of stuff on the wall okay that's a bit of set dressing that will tell you that but what if we have a butler who's immensely proud that he works for this man mm, yeah. and the dude is touching the I mean there's such a lovely detail do, the dude just yeah. touching these bits <laughs> on the wall and you can just see Seymour Hoffman just sort of don't, bris- don't touch it don't please, touch it please don't do that <laughs> and he's, he's trying Thank to you. be polite because he's the butler right yeah, yeah. so he can't be you know but he's hey you should when, when you go back and watch it again by the way watch Philip Seymour Hoffman when his character laughs because he's his yeah, nostrils yeah. laugh at the same First, time as his mouth. Just a moment before his nostrils go, right? It's when Amazing. she says, I'll give you, uh, I'll suck your dick for a thousand dollars. And he just sort of, it starts, you're right, in his nose. And then the rest of him joins in. Oh, we're all so fond of her. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also, fun a- fact, Tara Reid had a toe double for that film. Did she? Oh, Those yeah. aren't her toes. Blimey. Isn't that exciting? Gosh. Yeah, yeah. It's just such a lovely thing to talk about something which is such a good example of how you can break all the rules and yet follow all the rules. Because no, mm. usually when you're given an example of great Hollywood filmmaking, you're constantly told, you must follow all these rules. And this just says, yeah, know the rules, but you can probably just dick around with them all. Mm. And at the end of it, if you've worked hard enough and thought hard enough, it'll be so entertaining that it won't matter that you didn't actually follow I mean, it also, it's such a good example of so many things. We haven't but even now. talked about the scattering of the ashes, which is one of, I think, the funniest images in, in cinema. You sort of can't believe 
they'd been the first to do. It's one yeah, of those images yeah. that classic, it feels like it should have already existed. And people tell yeah. you that's happened to them, and still I've not right. seen it in a film. I've heard people say, oh yeah, we scattered it somewhere, and it blew all over us. And it's executed so perfectly that he delivers a <laughs> eulogy to his meek friend all about and Vietnam. begins to go off on Vietnam and the other people who died. In accordance and with what we think your your last wishes yeah, might have been yeah. or something, isn't it? Thing. And then he, he listened to it. It's so, it's so, they, he shakes all of the ashes at, and it takes a while and they yeah. just hold that one shot. It's so perfect. The ashes actually fill the frame of the camera for a while before they clear and you see the dude is stood there and it's aid and the dude just stays still yeah. for ages with Walter going, oh, I'm sorry, beginning to sort of pat him down before the dude just finally explodes. But it ends with a hug. It, yeah. You know, it ends with the sort of, you know, the dude's just like, why is everything fucking about nice and with, you know, no. he finally kind of explodes. And then you just have this moment of, as you say, it's a great de- depiction of male, of sort of impotent male rage. And then, and then a, it and ends then with friendship. this, yeah, it's, you know, the dude is who he needs. But again, that's the, the, fi- the his- final message you're left with the film, because it, it's a meandering, it's supposed to be inconsequential, it's, but that's the joke it's meant to be. But the final message is that you've seen them be lovely to Donnie suddenly and be sentimental about mm. him and fuck it up and do it badly. And then you've seen them be friends. And the final thing you get, as you do with Withnall, is you go, actually, these people needed each other. Mm. So at the end of the film, oh, fuck, who cares about the... Oh, fuck, who cares about the rug? Who cares about the kidnap? Mm. All you care about is that you've had a nice time, you've spent some time with these people, and you want to do it again, mm. which is the key to a cult film, because you want to go back and spend more time with these people yeah. because you've enjoyed their company. Yeah. And look, they're lovely, even though on paper they're both awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't make them likeable. Make them so you want to spend time yeah, with them. Yeah, make them That's flawed. the key. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. What, a, what, a, what object lesson in writing a good comedy. Brilliant. Thank you for bringing... Big Lebowski, what a pleasure. Total pleasure. Thank you, Matt Bainton. 